0: Ebola, as the disease spreads, is the world's reaction too little, too late. The former chief of the defence staff, General Lord Richards, talks tough on spending.
1: If they say all that and they cut defence again, then that's me done. Uh, I will come out of my corner fighting.
0: And Kim Jong-un, is it really business as usual in North Korea? Britain's battle against Ebola has begun with the first major deployment of British troops to West Africa. Members of Tutu Field Hospital are heading for Sierra Leone to help combat the epidemic. But there's concern that aid isn't reaching the affected areas quickly enough. I'm joined, as usual, by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and also by the BBC's Mark Doyle, who is in the Ghanaian capital, Accra, which is acting as a hub for equipment. Um, hello, Mark. Just tell us, first of all, what the situation is there.
2: Well, the situation in Ghana is that the UN have set up, a, uh, beginning to set up I should say, um, a, a new sort of coordination centre, it's called the United Nations Emergency Ebola Response, or UNMIR um, um, it's uh, basically a, a set of offices at the moment but they, they say they're going to be the brains behind um, uh, the muscle which is taking place in the three countries where um, the Ebola outbreak is so serious, that's Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia, which are a short hop by plane from here Um, So, the UN is is beginning to set up, but um, the numbers of cases that are uh, growing exponentially all the time in the three countries affected does indeed, as as you suggested, um, imply that the international community is doing far too little, too late.
0: So, do you get any sense of whether they are under control there?
2: Uh, No, the disease is is, is completely out of control. Um, We have this from the very brave uh, African and international medical workers who have already been there for several months, people like Médecins Sans Frontières, the Red Cross and so on, who have employed thousands of Liberians, Sierra Leoneans, Guineans to help them. Um, They make it quite clear that the disease is out of control Uh, and indeed the head of the new UN um, operation here in Ghana um, has said that the disease is winning. Um, He said that the international community has not done nearly enough Um, so far Um, and uh, he says he needs uh, uh, Tony Banbury, his name is an American he says he needs everything, he needs it everywhere and he needs it super fast
0: Christopher Lee, are more troops needed?
3: If you've always brought more troops in, you've got something for them to do you have to put troops in, they can set up a, a wiring diagram if you like of what is needed they can also act act as in fact as a security force as well as the expertise that you bring with them like engineers for, for building for, for army medics. I think we've got to put this in a bit of perspective we expect when there is a disaster whether it be an earthquake or some great tragedy like this we expect the modern world to respond quickly because it's got all the response. It, we live in an iPhone world, if you like, where we have instant everything. When a president or a prime minister gets up and says, we will do the following, you can't just do the following. You've got to discover the resources, you've got to talk. You know, We're, we're talking here at the moment 57 different agencies working through the United Nations, or supposedly you've got to go to each one of those you 've got to get there you 've got to get there uh, agreement on things you 've got to uh, who commands it, who supplies it, who has to be consulted. You cannot do it. You can put in an, an emergency team, but for the for the large operation, in spite of what people expect, because we live around things where things happen instantly, mm. and our politicians say we can, you cannot do it because physically you can 't It takes, for example, a week for, for, for the uh, Argus the uh, ship to get RFP down ship, there. Yes. The RFA we'll ship, yes. ship to get later, down yes. there. But it is only there as a small part of what's happening.
0: Mark, Mark Doyle, you're obviously talking to people who are involved in the operation there in Accra. What are they saying to you about how they're coping? What situation are they in? Well,
2: I, 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 mean, I, I completely agree with Christopher. I mean, what, what's happening here is is the equivalent of, of trying to set up a sort of medium-sized multinational corporation uh, in a space of days. Well, you know, it just, just can't be done. You have to get the people here. Uh, they have to have the right specialities. Um, they need offices, cars, phones. Uh, and as Christopher rightly says, uh, sort of c- these people are international civil servants mostly. They're, they're not superhumans or saints. Uh, and, and, they, and they have their own bureaucratic uh, procedures. Um, there's currently a meeting taking place here in Accra Uh, with some of those agencies, sort of banging heads together, uh, saying, you know, you're going to do this, you're going to do the other. And some people are saying, well, that's not what we normally do. Well, so they brought in a big head honcho from United Nations New York, who was appointed directly by Ban Ki-moon. And I think his job will be to sort of bang heads together and say, well, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and you've got to do it very fast. Um, But you don't set up an international, multinational corporation uh, in days. Um, And um, it's... You know, we, we, we all expect and we, we, we think of these aid workers as, as doing things because we've seen pictures of them feeding babies or uh, providing security. Uh, and we think that they therefore do this all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't. They're in planes half the time. They're in different parts of the world half the time. And when you bring them together for an emergency, uh, it does take a while uh, to set it up.
0: All right, Mark Dole, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for giving us a picture there from Ghana. Well, I've been speaking to the former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Lord Richards. We'll be hearing from him throughout the programme on a range of issues, including Ebola. I asked Lord Richards if he thought the UK was doing enough to help in the fight against the disease.
1: The problem is it's too little too late. Um, and I don't blame, um, you know, the government. Uh, it's easy to, to do that. But I would like to know, actually, and I'm intending to pursue this as a peer, what was the World Health Organisation doing for the last six months? Do
0: you blame them, do
1: you? I think they need to explain what they were doing in the last six months. I was there in Sierra Leone in May. I came back and I said, no, this is spreading towards Freetown. Um, you know, And I alerted friends and government and they, they say, well, it's all under control. WHO has got a whole a handle on it. Uh, and I'm not saying that they, they are culpable. But why, as early as uh, when it was starting in March, actually, slightly earlier, how has this happened? Uh, and people are paid to keep us alert, to keep our political leaders alert to the risk. And someone, somewhere, didn't do their job very well.
0: Uh, Christopher Lee, um, President Obama has said his country needs to act against the disease in a much more aggressive way. Are we starting to see sort of controlled panic from world leaders here? I don't think
3: it's, it's, it's not even that. It is a question that they are not competent. The system is no longer competent just to throw an operation open. And as we were talking with uh, You say no
0: longer. Did it used to be competent? It did, because it
3: was much simpler to do so, because we didn't have the problems that we have now. But, you see, when when, uh, General Richards was was talking then, he said, you know, we warned them in March. Well, you think about what was going on in March... They were beside themselves on what was going on with Ukraine in March, what was going on in Syria, what was going on with the emergence of, of, of ISIS in that period. They cannot move so easily internationally where you've got to consult everybody. And the other thing... I, I was talking to somebody in the Foreign Office, and he said, this sounds very, very, very cruel, but I'll tell you one thing, he said. In the so-called controlling world, which is what, they call, what we used to call the Western world, United States, Europe, etc., he said, mostly... And most of the time, we do not care enough if 4,000 Africans die in West Africa, because we believe that's what they do. But it's when one of them might bring that disease, that death, into our own countries that Mm -hmm. we've got to react. And if you take the United States, he said, look at the United States at the moment, 80,000 people in the United States this year are probably going to die from hepatitis. 19,000 more will probably die from flu. Mm. In Africa so far, 700,000 casualties this year from malaria and that's the way they look at it until somebody might bring something into your own country and you've got to react
0: well as we've already heard british troops are now on their way to sierra leone meanwhile rfa argus is preparing to leave falmouth for sierra leone tomorrow where it'll join efforts to control the ebola outbreak more than 400 military personnel will be on board our reporter tim cooper has been watching the preparations
4: rfa argus in falmouth about to begin a humanitarian relief operation of immense importance. Sailing to stand off Sierra Leone to help with the British government's efforts to bring relief to Ebola sufferers. As she was preparing to sail, I joined the ship
2: to see just how they were getting ready for the mission. It's been fairly hectic, but um, that's our our sort of job, to get ready and uh, be ready within the time that they give us. Um, We found out last Wednesday evening and uh, it's been a bit of a rush, but yeah, more, more than happy to
4: go. I think there was a little bit of anticipation to begin with, but since we've received a lot more of our briefings and training, uh, we're all really confident and really pleased to be making a difference. We've got a responsibility to move kit and, uh, and people for all around the waterways of uh, Sierra Leone uh, and around Freetown in particular. Working in West Africa is always a challenge, um, not just the disease issue. I mean, the Ebola is only really one of those challenges. Malaria in the area, um, uh, challenging waterways. RFA Argus isn't going to be a hospital ship treating Ebola patients. Her extensive medical facilities will be for illness or injury of the crew on board. Although if anyone from the 400 Strong Ships company is unlucky enough to catch Ebola, they'll be treated on shore, not on the ship. Commanding officer of RFA Argus is Captain David Eagles, and he explained to me the key aspects of the mission.
5: Very much aviation support. So Sierra Leone has its challenges in terms of moving around the country and with its internal infrastructure. So to have the helicopters able to fly personnel, stores, equipment, be used for surface reconnaissance and to get to the heart of the issues will be a a major asset for the um, DFID.
4: There's a great sense on board talking to crew members about the fact that they're up for this operation, they're keen to get involved, but there are of course risks, and Ebola very much hit the headlines. How are we mitigating, or how are you mitigating, the risks for personnel going ashore?
5: Okay, there's been a comprehensive education tra- uh, in process and training as we head down, but fundamentally the personnel probably we're most concerned about will be the Royal Marine landing craft crews, who potentially can come into contact um, with local personnel. On return to Argus, they will all be given a comprehensive medical questionnaire. Question one is, have you had any contact with local people? Um, If they have, these people will be very closely monitored, Um, temperatures, etc., will be taken, and they'll be closely supervised and scrutinised.
4: Throughout my time aboard, stores, landing craft, water kits, countless other items were loaded. Visiting and watching all this was the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, who underlined how important he feels this mission is. Well, this is a vital mission to save lives in Sierra Leone, to help the government of Sierra Leone get this outbreak under control, but also to help keep Britain safe. If this outbreak isn't brought under control, we'll see it spread right across West Africa and into Europe and into the United Kingdom. So this is frontline stuff. This is a vital mission. It's a vital mission to keep people safe in Britain. It is a major world fear. The question is, is one ship, although well-kitted out enough, This is one of the very few countries in the world that can throw a ship, helicopters, army, uh, navy, units at this uh, problem. We're seconding 750 troops altogether to work with the government of Sierra Leone. That is the biggest commitment of any European country to dealing with this problem. RFA Argus will leave Falmouth tomorrow. During her two-week transit to Sierra Leone, the 400 embarked personnel will undergo rigorous training. Before long, the ship's three Merlin helicopters, fast patrol boats and RIBs will be providing assistance where it's most needed. Tim Cooper for SITREP in Falmouth.
0: SITREP. Birth. Birth. Still to come, why British troops are exercising on Russia's front line. And Kim Jong-un back in action in North Korea, or is he? This is BFBS SITREP. The Pentagon has said coalition airstrikes have killed several hundred Islamic State militants in and around Kobani. The extremists have been battling for weeks to take the strategic town in Syria, which lies on the border with Turkey. Despite the news, the US is warning it could still fall into the hands of IS fighters. The American special envoy responsible for building the coalition against Islamic State militants, General John Allen, says the raids were designed to relieve those defending the town and to buy them time in the fight against the jihadists.
4: Clearly there was a need, uh, given the circumstances associated with the the defence of that uh, town. There was a need for additional fire support to go in to try to relieve the defenders and to buy some white space ultimately for the reorganisation of the ground. And so we have picked up. Uh, The tempo and the intensity of the airstrikes in order to
2: provide that white space.
0: Christopher, um, we heard earlier today that the UK will send Reaper drones to the Middle East. Is Britain's response good enough?
3: No one has ever suggested you can beat this system from the air. That's the first thing to remember. No one has suggested that we're going to send in troops. So part of a Reaper deployment, for example, part of close air support is to try and put people like the Kurds into a position when they can hold off ISIS. Now, I'll give you one example of the, problem, the size of the problem. Uh, if you send in, let's say, a tornado with a full weapons load, you can probably knock out a truck with a machine gun on it. Before that aircraft is back to Akrotiri, that's a half a million pound trip, Before it's back, there's another machine gun. Mm. And there is the size of the problem. So your main emphasis is to actually build up the ground forces.
0: Well, this week it was also confirmed British troops are on the ground in Iraq in a training role, something that Lord Richards talked about when I asked him about the use of regional combat troops.
1: I mean, I'm a simple soldier. I see what our politicians and President Obama, by no means not just Britain, by the way, as you know, that's what they want to achieve Uh, I'm looking at the things they've put into the mix to achieve it, and in my judgment, they're out of kilter. Now, the the broad plan to raise local armies and so on is fine, but the question for them all is how long do you have? And it will take, by anyone's definition, uh, 9 to 12 months. If we think we've got that long and airstrikes in the meanwhile can contain it and suppress ISIS then fine, but if they haven't got that long and a lot of people who know the area much better than me are saying I'm not certain about it, then the only alternative is to leaven those uh, local armies with Western troops of one kind or another.
0: Christopher, is Lord Richards right there? Are we short of time? Um, We've been short of time um,
3: right from the beginning. We're back to this idea, really, um, that you cannot... Beat the system with the methods we're employing. We know that you cannot do that. The other problem is that you have, then somebody has to take a view. Do you gradually say to the rest of the region, isn't, it's your problem, we will help where we can, which effectively is what's going on then. And so it's not us saying we're short of time. It's you've got to say: Are you short of time too? People like the Saudis, the Qataris, etc.
0: Let's move on to other matters now. And as more than 1,300 British troops prepare for a large-scale NATO exercise in Poland, 12th Armoured Infantry Brigade's commander predicts they won't be the army's last big manoeuvres. Brigadier Rowley Walker has been leading a delegation of senior officers this week to Munchen Gladbach in Germany and the theatre fleet support unit there. As Rob Olver reports, the facility is providing many of the 350 armoured vehicles the army sending to the joint Polish-British exercise.
6: The Munchengladbach Theater Fleet Support Unit can house 2,000 military vehicles. Some stored in this vast facility will soon be in Poland with a 1,350-strong British battle group led by the King's Royal Hussars. Black Eagle, a joint exercise with the Poles, is meant to reassure NATO's Eastern European allies after Russia's annexation of Crimea and the Ukraine crisis. The British Army hasn't staged an exercise in Eastern Europe on this scale since 2008, and some of the vehicles that are being sent to Poland have been in garages for even longer. Challenger 2 main battle tanks top a list of heavy armoured vehicles stored here, sometimes for years, in dehumidified hangars designed to limit corrosion. Tanks played no part in Britain's Afghanistan mission. And the last time some of those now about to go to Poland had their engines switched on was in 2006. After so much inactivity, how will they now cope with a high-intensity war-fighting exercise? This hasn't been done before, so um,
3: we're learning things for the first time. And a lot of the challenges we're facing—you know, how they've dried out, how the seals have um, dealt with being parked up in a garage for eight years—it's all new ground. <laughs> Since July, Lieutenant Colonel Phil Crosser's team from One Close
6: Support Battalion, REMI has been working 60-hour weeks preparing for the Polish exercise.
3: When the vehicles go to Poland, we know that they work now. Um, What's going to happen is that they will be driven cross-country, which is something we haven't done yet, and they'll also do live firing. So as much as we've inspected all the systems, we've tested them as much as we can, the next step is to test them under load. So we'll see how they stand up to the cross-country and the live firing.
6: The man who really needs everything to work is Lieutenant Colonel Justin Kingsford. His King's Royal Hussars battle group will soon be plugging into a Polish armoured brigade. I think um, there was a lot of fear uh,
3: amongst the unknowns, really, as to the state that all the vehicles are going to be in. But the um, testimony, to, to testament rather, to the hard work um, over the last ten weeks for the gang that have been here—they've got them really up to shape. So no, we look forward to working on them in bonus.
6: The Theatre Fleet Support Unit describes the job of reviving vehicles from their long dehumidified slumber as a steep learning exercise. For future battlefield training and operations, the aim is to reduce today's the time needed to take vehicles out of storage. Brigadier Rowley Walker commands 20th Armoured Infantry Brigade and expects large-scale training exercises like those now underway in Eastern Europe to continue. I would anticipate doing more of these. Of course, they have to be at the request of allies and friends, so I don't have the schedule of invitations. But I think it's, it's extremely useful for us. It gets us back into the mindset of being ready for anything to go wherever we need to go within the notice that we're held at. So I'd hope that we would have more of these things. Exercise Black Eagle begins in southeast Poland later this month.
0: That's Rob Olver reporting from Germany. As the armed forces become more involved in the world's latest trouble spots, whether it be Sierra Leone, the Middle East or Eastern Europe, questions are again being asked about funding for the military. It's possible that we'll soon be spending less than 2% of our GDP on defence. I asked the former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Lord Richards, for his views on the possibility of further cuts.
1: I have said publicly that if... Um, after all, we've heard recently and the emphasis put on defence and doing anything that's necessary uh, in respect of ISIS and then people you know, talk about Ukraine and Russia. And I tell you, there's lots of other trouble spots out there that they don't talk about, like Nigeria, um, Somalia, Yemen. You know, so it goes on, make sure we finish off Afghanistan properly. That if they say all that and they cut defence again, then that's me done. Uh, I will come out of my corner fighting. Oh, uh, you well, along- do, well, I don't know. I will call their bluff, and I am now, thanks to, I'm sure, the Prime Minister. Um, I am, you know, a parliamentarian. and um, But I think they... I, I absolutely know the Prime Minister doesn't intend to do that. It's, his heart is in it. It's whether... It might
0: not be his decision. No,
1: it's the political class as a whole. Uh, and, of course, um, it's, it's whoever is our Prime Minister. Um, I hear them... Uh, for me, as you rightly said, uh, the jury is out till next year. But if they cut defence anymore, then it will all be for nothing. And many, many people who have devoted their, their lives, and in some cases all their lives in my case, but in some cases who have lost their lives to do the right thing uh, for this country and to protect us from all these horrors out there, then you've got to say, what was it all about? Um, it's a load of humbug.
0: Christopher Lord Richards. Do you know when Lord
3: Richards was in 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 the hut at the time of these defence cuts that we were talking about? He was talking about. Mm-hmm. He didn't put his job on the line. He didn't sort of call the people, the country, and say, "Listen, don't let people do that." None I of think these guys was, uh, did. He
0: probably would argue that he was uh, he, he was better in his position trying to protect what he could. He was
3: probably better in the tent. Yeah, but the, but the important part of this is is that. It has completely changed. The picture of defence has completely changed now. And we are heading, if you talk to any economist, we are heading for a bigger financial crisis than we had in 2008. And so it's going to be a very tough job. And I'm afraid the and it's not going to become an election issue either mm. and that's another problem and I don't, if there are uh, defence cuts, they're going to be hard cuts, they're not going to be easy ones to, to take.
0: And just a reminder, you can see my Cape Meets interview with Lord Richards on Forces TV from tomorrow and Lord Richards' book, his autobiography, Taking Command is now available. The North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un seems to have made his first public appearance since early September. He was pictured in a Korean newspaper walking with the aid of a stick. The absence of the 32 two-year-old leader had prompted a flurry of speculation about his health and even rumors that there'd been a coup so is the picture genuine and is it really business as usual in north korea well joining us now is andrea berger from rusi the think tank she's at a conference at the university of central lancashire on korea andrea good to speak to you um do you think this picture is recent then
7: well i think it's fairly likely that it's it's recent um when we look at the appearances that kim jong-un was making in early september before he had his extended absence he wasn't walking with a cane so that's certainly a, a development that's happened uh, quite recently and i i think there's no reason to expect that uh, the photos that are appearing in the papers now haven't been been taken at least in the last few weeks if not even more recently
0: so what do you think is behind this uh, sabbatical
7: well it seems that he did have a genuine medical issue um it looks like it's a problem with his leg and like any other human being medical issues uh, do sometimes arise and it seems that that was the case here and and perhaps one of the reasons why the the coup speculation started swirling as they did is as ever with north korea um where there is an absence of information, we often fill that with assumption and sometimes even prejudice, and I think that was probably at play here,
3: Christopher. It's wonderful, sort of, um, uh, sort of amateur intelligence gathering, this, isn't it? Uh, for example. Somebody says, he's wearing larger trousers, therefore he's got that a problem. That was you
0: who said that when we were looking at the pictures earlier. It was me, was it? <laughs> yes, I, it was. I, I
3: knew it was a good source. <laughs> um, but, but the other thing, he's, yeah, he's got these bigger trousers. The other thing, if you watch the way he walks, he's walking like a man who is who is in, in, in ailment. But the other thing we've we really got to um, start thinking about, this week, wasn't there, uh, Andrea, uh, a meeting of the generals, North Korea, South Korea generals, at some village, it was the North Koreans' idea yeah, to have really... it. They didn't get very far, but the fact that it took place, we suddenly think, put that into it. Is the is the young lad actually still in charge?
7: Well, I think he absolutely is, and I think, as a matter of fact, um, <clears throat> these types of activities, so, for instance, um, a few weeks ago there was a group of three high-level North Korean officials that went to South Korea, um, and more recently, of course, as you know, there was a meeting at Panmunjom, at the demilitarized zone, and those things generally would be unlikely to happen if there were any kind of uh, lack of decision-making at the top from from the leader. So it seems like this is actually... Substantiation that he is still at the helm, rather than prove okay. to the contrary.
0: All right, Andrea Berger. Thanks for your time. We'll let you get back to that conference, and and we'll watch the the size of the trousers with interest. Uh, Christopher, I don't think I'll quite get over you calling him the young lad, Kim well, Jong Un. I
3: don't know, but I I suppose that is very relevant. I apologise if if, <laughs> if, if, if if it is. You better but watch
0: your back. <laughs> I
3: will. I will, and the front, but I, I'm telling you the, the most important thing about what's going on there. The fact we've got to remember this guy is is is, is running a nuclear power. Indeed. And so therefore, it's that's not... why I'd
0: watch my words a bit more carefully. There's
3: not one coming to Acacia Gardens in okay. Mayfair shortly. <laughs> but, uh, but it is. It, but it's watching all these. This is one of the problems that we we're talking about earlier uh, about uh, Ebola and how national leaders react It is an example of how they're reacting all over the world. They've Mm. got to take decisions. They've got to think what they're doing all the time. It's not just one one job at a time. All right,
0: let's talk about other things we mustn't miss this week. And um, the Arms Control Committee is scrutinising where Britain sends its arms to.
3: Yeah, very simply. um, The committee came out to report and said it wasn't happy the way that uh, weapons could be sold to Syria, uh, even even sort of target uh, pistols. And sniper rifles to the Ukraine, to Egypt, to Saudi Arabia, etc., without so-called end-user c- certificates. And this is what happens: you say, "I want to send some weapons to so and so." They say, "Well, who's it going to? But who will it end up with? That's the end user. Mm. So somebody buys it and then flogs it." And off it's to whether or not the MOD
0: can guarantee you where it's going whether to end can,
3: up. And the MOD has come back and it said, "You know, uh, Egypt, Ukraine, Syria, no problems about that." And then somebody will say, "I mean, for example, last night the Egyptians are supposed to have bombed Libya." You know, which has actually happened, I think, about one o'clock this morning. Mm. And then we start saying, Well that that's that's the sort of thing we're trying to get to. You said sell, sell somebody a Land Rover and it's a Land Rover until they put a machine gun yeah. on the back.
0: Uh, we talked earlier about um Ukraine because that Obviously, kicking off in March, when the, the former defence uh, head of the UK's armed forces was saying we should have been thinking about Ebola, what is happening in Ukraine at the moment? Uh,
3: they're trying to get. They're trying to. Get, they're trying to get a smooth, as as the diplomats call it. Uh, what's happened is that Putin has ordered the withdrawal from the border region a large part of his army that he's got down there. There's a meeting tomorrow in Italy, in Milan, when the Russians and the Ukrainians will meet at presidential level. And that is important. This is the first sign that something's going on. You don't fix in a week. You're going to be there for, You're going to be with this for a long time, a long time to come.
0: Uh, just going to end on a thought from the Archbishop of Canterbury, who said he wants bankers to become monks for a year. Would that happen? Perhaps for the armed forces, ever would they benefit from that kind of thing? Well, of course, a bit of thinking space.
3: A, yes, I mean, I mean, don't forget the Archbishop of Canterbury is, is, is a Christian, even if his predecessor didn't believe in God. And so, what we've got now <laughs> is. is I, this... I'm not
0: going to comment on that one. He did. He did. He told me.
3: Now, the important thing about this is that what you do in a year off and what you do when you come to the thing as one of the archbishop's monks, when the chaplain gets up and preaches on Trinity Sunday, thou shalt not kill. Interesting one.
0: Mm, it is indeed. That is all we have time for, for this week. Our thanks to Mark Doyle, General Lord Richards, and Andrea Berger. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS Sit Rep. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com. sit rep. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye bye for now.
7: Sports sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio Two. Radio.